Today's reading is from Matthew 5, 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brothers will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brothers will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gifts at the altar, and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks again, Graham. Good job, buddy. Twice in a day. Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Scott. I am one of the pastors here at Christ Pres. We actually have two locations. Uh, This is one of them. Uh, We meet here at Central every week at 8.30 and 11 a.m., and then we've got one uh, across the street from Vanderbilt, uh, right in the center of, of the three major universities of Nashville, uh, meets at 9.30 uh, as well under the leadership of Pastor Stacy Croft. Uh, it is my joy to welcome you here today, whether you've been here for a long time or whether this is your first Sunday here. Uh, as is always the case, I want to invite you to take the black notebook in your row, fill it out, pass it on. This We use this. It helps us to serve our community better, and, and it helps us to shepherd better. So thank you for that. And uh, there are two featured announcements this week. Uh, one is that I want to invite you all back today at 4 o'clock p.m. for what we are calling uh, a unity worship service. We will be hosting uh, Pastor Ronnie Mitchell and the Congregation of New Livingstone Church Uh, located in East Nashville. They are dear friends to us and to our community. Uh, Pastor Ronnie has spoken here already a couple of times at different events, and uh, just trust me, you will not want to miss this. Uh, This will be in in anticipation of the celebration of the life of Dr. King uh, tomorrow. And uh, what we want to do as Christ Press is roll out the red carpet for our friends uh, and, and demonstrate to them, show them the hospitality of Jesus as they come in. So try to get here a little bit early so you can anticipate their arrival, uh, but that service will start at four o'clock right here in this sanctuary tonight. Uh, And then second, if you're new to CPC, uh, what I'd like to do is invite you to the newcomer dessert, which happens next Sunday night, the 22nd at 7 p.m. It's going to be at a house very close to where we are sitting right now, and this is something that we do quarterly. It's my opportunity, especially as, as senior pastor, to meet with you. It's your opportunity to ask any questions that you want about Christ Pres, our vision, the things that are most important to us, our community. Uh, how you can get involved and those sorts of things. So, uh, so those are our announcements today, friends. And now what I'd like to do is turn our attention back to the Scripture that's been read. We are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we've been in the Beatitudes. We've still got two Beatitudes left, but we're skipping forward just for this week for this particular text because today is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and tomorrow is celebration of Dr. King, and uh, this seemed to be the most germane, most relevant text in the Sermon on the Mount uh, for this particular weekend. We'll, we'll go back to the Beatitudes uh, starting next week. But 
um, sanctity of life. So if you've been at CPC long enough, you know that, that our ethic of life seeks to be comprehensive. Uh, all the way from conception in the womb to death, we, 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 we have a, a, a very, very strong disposition toward the inestimable value of every single human life created in the image of God. That includes the unborn and also the elderly and people with special needs and the poor and minorities and the disadvantaged, aliens, strangers, refugees, and so on. Human being, to be human is to be valuable. To, to be human is to carry dignity. And so, W.C. Fields, the comedian, uh, trying to put to humor uh, a very broken aspect of the human condition, he said this, I am free of all prejudices. I hate everyone equally. Now, the gospel and I think W.C. Fields knew this and felt this as well. The gospel says the opposite of that. To be free of prejudice, we must love everyone equally. The narrow path of Jesus, by definition, leads to a broad embrace. People from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people group, and culture, and so on. And so, so, if you've read the Bible at all, if you're a Bible reader, you know that, that, that there was a time where Jesus said that the most important command in the Bible is to love your, the Lord your God with everything that you are, and, and the second command is just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And when he was asked, when he was pressed to explain what he means by love your neighbor as yourself, Somebody in the crowd asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? To answer that question, Jesus put in a story, in a parable, a Jew and a Samaritan, which represented one of the major hostilities, one of the major sort of socio-political and, and cultural divisions of that time, ethnic divisions as well of that time. You know, the Apostle Paul, who identified himself as, as, as an agent of reconciliation, who started almost all of his letters with, with the words grace to you, which is the standard Greek salutation, and peace to you, which was the standard Jewish salutation in a letter, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he's making a statement of reconciliation. He's making a statement of how the church of Jesus Christ is meant to be countercultural, in that those who would not normally hang out together, those who would not normally identify as brothers and sisters, those who would naturally divide outside of the gospel, inside of the gospel are one. He talks in Ephesians 2 about how the dividing walls in Jesus of hostility have been broken down and eliminated between human communities. You know, 2016 is, 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 has become the year that everybody's saying it's the year that we want to forget because of all the cynicism, the outrage, the, uh, the division, and the prejudice on all sides, whether we're talking about politics or sexuality or religion or race. And what better weekend than the one in which we commemorate the memory of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to consider 
a new way forward and a more life-giving way forward under Jesus. It was Dr. King who said that darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. He also said that the method of nonviolence, which was his strategy for fighting oppression and injustice, the method of nonviolence seeks not to humiliate and not to defeat the oppressor, but it seeks to win his friendship and his understanding, and thereby and therefore the aftermath of this method is reconciliation. There's that Pauline language again. So there are three headings I'd like to explore the theme of reconciliation, uh, in particular the mortification or, 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 or the killing of, 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 of seeds of anger in order to, to pave, the path, pave the path for reconciliation and peace under three headings. Let your sword down, let your defenses down, and take up the gospel. So first of all, let down your sword. So the truth about all of us, and Jesus alludes to this in the Sermon on the Mount, in the text in front of us today, the truth about all of us is that we have homicide in our hearts. And Jesus identifies the homicide in our hearts in verse 22 when he talks about the anger that's inside of us and the insults that proceed from that anger outside of our mouths, first and foremost. You know, one of the main phrases, one of the key phrases in the Sermon on the Mount that sort of, you know, encapsulates the whole message is this, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you can't inherit the kingdom of God. You can't see the kingdom of God. In other words, if you're going to identify with Jesus… If, you're going to, if your righteousness is going to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, then you will stop looking at the law of God in strictly cosmetic terms, and in terms of externals. See, what the Pharisees did was they relaxed the force of the Ten Commandments. And, and the commandment that, that we're talking about here is the Sixth Commandment, which says you shall not mor- murder. And so the Pharisees relaxed the force of that commandment by essentially saying you can hate anybody you want and you, you remain innocent of this particular law of God as long as you haven't committed the act of murder. This is similar to uh, modern-day rhetoric, and I realize I might step on some toes in saying this, so be it. Modern-day rhetoric, especially in heated political seasons, says that a fetus is a potential life. When Scripture and science and biology all tell us that no, a fetus is an actual life, not a potential life. In the same way, to say that anger is potential murder is, is off the mark. Anger is murder in the way that Jesus is addressing it here. You know, what the Lord and Master, what the King of the kingdom, of which we are part through faith in Him, is saying is that the same seeds reside in us that led Hitler to kill the Jews. Do you believe that? That those same seeds are are, are in your heart and in my heart? You know, if you were here last week, I made a little road rage confession, right? So, last week was one of those weeks. About every six weeks or so, I will preach at both locations here, and then I'll go to in-town and then come back. And, and I got behind on the way back here for the 11 o'clock service. I got behind a voluntary, or a voluntary slow-moving vehicle. 
uh, who had the audacity to, to be going six miles an hour under the speed limit. And how do I know that? I was watching and judging, uh, uh, you know, on my own speedometer. You know, my little road rage confession, if Jesus' words are true here, is not little at all. It's not insignificant at all. You know, like Bo Bennett said, pet peeves do not make good pets because of what they can lead to. So I've shared before that I, I represent on the Myers-Briggs profile the rarest personality uh, that, that there is in the Myers-Briggs, and that's INFJ. We are less than 1%, we INFJs. And, um, you know, there, are, there is literature that, that sort of tells you who the famous, well-known people are that, that share your personality trait. Uh, one of those people for me is Gandhi. I didn't realize that Gandhi took the, the Myers-Briggs. Um, <laughs> but Gandhi and I share a personality. Jesus and I share a personality. And then there's one other figure in the mix, and his name is Adolf Hitler. So there's, there's an inner Jesus and an inner Hitler that every believer carries with him or, or carries with her. You know, Paul identifies it as the old man and the new. We, we carry both with us. We carry this tension, you know, between the spirit and the flesh. There's a lot of biblical language around this. But the question is, what differentiates Adolf Hitler from Scott Saul's? And what Jesus is suggesting here is that what differentiates Adolf Hitler and Scott Saul's is not the degree of sinfulness, because we are equally sinful, the two of us, but the degree of grace, the degree of protective grace, where, where God intervenes for, for His own sovereign purposes with Scott Saul's to prevent and to restrain Scott Saul's from becoming what he has every bit of potential inside of himself to become, given the right uh, 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 conditions. Tim Keller put it this way, mass murder is when an acorn of resentment gets fertilized, watered, and finds the proper environment for germination. So take a look at the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 9, this is one of the most stunning, otherworldly, declarations of compassion and neighbor love that, that I think has ever been written, where the Apostle Paul, after, after he converts to Christianity, immediately gets ostracized, ostracized and excluded from, from those that, that, that he formerly was tight friends with. And, and, you know, because he became a Christian, they, they rejected him, ostracized him, persecuted him, uh, you know, smacked him with whips, uh, and, 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 and imprisoned him, beat him, did whatever they could to, to get him to renounce his Christianity, right? They, they hated him, they despised him. You know, they, 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 they regarded him as a, a, a betrayer of the cause. And, and, and what Paul says in Romans 9 is about these oppressors, if I could give up my own salvation so that they could know the salvation of Christ, I would. If I could spend eternity in hell, damned forever, if that was what it would take to open the door for them to be rescued and healed and, and, and brought into the loving arms of God, I would do it. Now, very interestingly, very tellingly, some years after this statement, Paul writes these words at the end of his, toward the end of his life. 
Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am, present tense, of whom I am the worst. Wait a minute. How can you… You would renounce your, your own standing with Christ for the sake of people who hate you, and you refer to yourself, present tense, as the chief of sinners. What are you talking about? This is Paul's awareness of the seeds that still reside in him. And he, he reflects on his former life of, yes, violence, mass murder, and such. It's as if he's standing on guard, preaching to himself, reminding himself, you never grow past your need for the grace of God, even as a beloved apostle. How do we know, you know, with regard to our pet peeves, that, that, that the pet has come out of the cage? Now, Jesus suggests that all we need to do is look at the words that come out of our mouths, because out of the mouth, what's in the heart speaks. So, verse 22, he says, whoever insults his brother will be liable. And then he says, whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. This word fool, it, it, it's a derogatory term. Uh, it's from the Greek word moros. We get our word moron from that. It, it's a belittling. It's a diminishing of the person in front of you, uh, or it's a diminishing of a person behind their backs through, through gossip or slander. But it, it's essentially to write them off, you know, to declare through cynicism and contempt you know, that, 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 that they are a nothing. So, I uh, heard this, uh, you know, story about a, an exchange between Lady Astor and Winston Churchill some years ago. They didn't get along very well, the two of them. And Lady Astor said to Winston Churchill, Mr. Churchill, if I was your wife, I would put poison in your coffee. To which Winston Churchill responded, Lady Astor, if I was your husband, I would drink it. <laughs> now, these sorts of exchanges are quite funny until it's us, until we're on the receiving end of these kinds of words. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Can I ask for a show of hands, how many of us believe that's true. Okay. It's not true. And you know this if anybody has ever criticized you or insulted you. Psychology Today did a rewrite of that statement based on their knowledge, based on their expertise. Sticks and stones may break my bones and words can cut me deeply. You know, this word fool, this word moros, moron, and all words like it are an expression of, an, of a contempt in the heart, of a motive to belittle, of a motive to finish somebody off with your words. If you can't assassinate them legally uh, by, by destroying their entire person, you will assassinate their character. You will assassinate their good name. You will assassinate their confidence through shame and such. You know, Dallas Willard says that contempt is a knife in the heart that permanently harms and mutilates a soul. Another commentary said this, that words of contempt put a dagger in a part of someone's heart that no surgeon can reach. 
And of course, any conversation around the Bible about anger raises the question, what if there's real injury? What if there's abuse? What if there is oppression of, of, of the variety that, that Dr. King and his colleagues experienced, for instance? And I think the simple answer to that for a very complicated, you know, question is that trust and forgiveness are very different things. That if you have been hurt or abused or wounded or damaged by somebody else, there is a track record of trust that must be established before you'll, before you'll let them back in. Trust must be earned. Trust is never assumed. You know, there are boundaries that, that need to be established. There are walls that need to be placed around your heart until it's, it becomes quite clear that this person has become repentant and remorseful and sorrowful to the degree that they have become safe again. And that takes time. Forgiveness, on the other hand, is that which is granted immediately. Grant, forgiveness is actually a condition of the heart that, that, that Jesus calls all of His followers into, that we, that we forgive as God in Christ has forgiven us, that, that, that the overflow of, of, of our hearts of having been forgiven, of having been declared blameless in the sight of God, of having been declared you know, there, that there is no condemnation over us because we're in Christ, as God in Christ has forgiven us, so we are to forgive. And all that means is to absorb, to not retaliate, to not punish back, but to leave justice in the hands of God. You know, if I believe that, that it's grace alone that keeps me from becoming a mass murderer, and, and, and if that reality starts to form my own self concept, that I am what I am because of grace, that I'm held back from being what I could be because of grace, it does begin to fuel a compassion and an understanding that hurting people hurt people, and that, that uh, you know, everyone you meet, like we always talk about in here, is fighting a hard battle, including perpetrators. If you were at the uh, Nashville Institute for Faith and Works uh, forum this past Wednesday. It was a wonderful evening. I highly encourage you to go online and watch the videos when they get uploaded if you, if you weren't, didn't have the opportunity to be there. But one of the panelists was Nashville's, Metro Nashville's Sheriff Darren Hall, who's seen a lot in his lifetime. And, and he said in his you know, time talking that, that a, a very high number of inmates who have committed crimes and who are incarcerated also have mental illness. And, 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 and upon discovering this and interacting with this reality over time, he, he has landed at the mantra, arrest the problem, not the person. Arrest the problem, not the person. In other words, the driving motivation in any confrontation for a Christian who is deeply conscious of having been forgiven in grace through Christ, the driving motivation is going to be restoration and not, not retaliation. So let down your sword, he says. But the next thing he says is to let down your defenses. You know, after, you know, giving stern warnings about anger, you know, Jesus in verse 23 makes an unexpected pivot. 
And he says, if your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother. What he's saying is that, that, that for my people, the onus is always on you. Whether you are the offended or the offender, you are the one to take the first step. You are the one to take initiative in making this situation right and, and, and in seeking reconciliation with your brother. And in those instances where you are declared by somebody else to be the offender rather than taking offense at that, make it easy for other people to forgive you. Make it easy for other people to forgive you. By resisting the urge to defend yourself, by, by you know, resisting the urge of, of taking offense over the fact that they find your behavior toward them offensive. You know, because another form of contempt is what you could call passive-aggressive contempt or stonewalling. You express your pain to me, and I give you a stone face. And I don't address your pain. I treat it as nothing, which is a passive-aggressive way of treating you and your personhood and your soul with contempt and stabbing a dagger in your heart quietly instead of loudly. Another form of contempt is dismissiveness. So I heard this story of a farmer's wife. I don't know if it's true or not, but it, but it is representative in many ways. A farmer, farmer's wife turns to her husband and says, you never tell me that you love me. You never tell me that you love me. And then he turns to her and says, I told you I love you 30 years ago when I married you. I'll let you know if I change my mind. Don't dismiss pain when somebody brings it to you and you're the cause. Own the pain that you've caused. I mean, Jesus says it this way in verse 25, come to terms quickly. Come to terms quickly with your accuser in order to avoid prison. Now, prison can, can take many forms. You know, in the legal system, it's, it's a physical prison. But in normal everyday relationships, without reconciliation, if, if I'm the problem, if I'm the one who's hurt somebody else and caused injury, the prison that I carry around with me is guilt, and either I'm very conscious of that and it's a burden I carry, or it's something I've stuffed down and suppressed and swept under the rug, but it, 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 the dysfunction of that travels into all of my other interactions with people. So the, so the dysfunction never leaves me until I exhale it through confession and through an apology and a request for forgiveness. But it also sets the other person free when I make it easy for them to forgive me through brokenness and contrition rather than doubling down with defensiveness or stonewalling them. You know, Corrie ten Boom, who knows a thing or two about forgiveness, said this, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. You know, when you offer a humble apology to somebody who expresses that they've been hurt by you, when you own it, when you name it, when you offer a humble, complete apology, everybody is freed from that prison in the equation. You know, parents, do you want moral authority with your kids? Then cultivate the habit of owning your moral failure with them. The best parents aren't the ones who never make mistakes and who cover their mistakes when they do. 
Those are the worst parents. Those are the dishonest parents. Those are the parents that that Paul talks about who exasperate their children. Do as I say, not as I do. Don't you dare cross me. Do you know who you're talking to? I'm your father. Well, if you're really a father, then apologize. Humble yourself when you hurt your kid. Humble yourself when you over-discipline. Humble yourself when you falsely accuse your kid. There's a lot at stake there. Kids are incredibly forgiving, but make it easy for them to forgive. The two most powerful words for a parent in the entire vocabulary of a parent are, I am sorry. That's three words. Four more words after that, will you forgive me? Throw in a please there, make it five. This is true in public too. One of our staff members was sharing with me last week how she was pulled over by a police officer. And uh, she said that when the police officer came to her, the window of her car, uh, she thanked him. She said, thank you for doing your job, sir. Thank you for keeping our streets safe. Thank you for helping me to understand as a citizen, as part of my responsibility to make our streets safe. He let her off the hook right? So, but you don't say things like that in order to manipulate so as to attain a desired result. You, you say those things for their own sake because they're right. You don't take offense when somebody hands you a ticket after you've broken a law. You say, thank you. You're helping me, you know, back on the trajectory of being fully human and whole again and righteous. Thank you. And this, you know, staff member said that the police officer said, you don't know how much that means, for a police officer to hear those kinds of words. We rarely hear those kinds of words. It's very hard to be a police officer these days. You know, I shared with you a while ago, a few months ago, about how I snapped at a postal worker. I got got postal on a postal worker at the post office. I just got snippy, and I thought he was overcharging me for postage, and you know, I left, I drove off, and my conscience was weighing on me. I went back, and I, you know, I, I waited in line, and it was in front of like 15 people. I was like, dude, I just got to apologize to you. I'm sorry for making your day worse. And, and, and you know, his response was, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expedite your package. I'm going to actually make it get, get there quicker than what you've paid for. Now, like, like, there's this response, and then I walk out, and there's this dude in a convertible, like, BMW driving out, and he looks at me, and he says, hey, dude, yeah, way to go, man, like, like cheering on the apology, you know? I'm just like, wow. <laughs> the hu- Isn't it true that the human heart comes alive to and or melts at an apology? And, 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 and the human heart and soul shrivels and relationships fragment from defensiveness and stonewalling, so why in the world don't we apologize more? Are we crazy? Are we insane? for our lack of apology when we know instinctively that it makes everything better. And I'm not talking about dysfunctional apologizing when you say you're sorry for something you didn't do. We are crazy. We are are chronic amnesiacs of the gospel. I mean, if the gospel is true, you know, I've said it several times before, you know, speak souls, or speak words that make souls stronger. Those, those are Ann Voskamp's words. One of the strongest words you can speak to a soul is, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? That makes everyone's soul stronger. And guess what? As a Christian, you have an inner resource to be able to apologize well. And that resource is called grace. 
Which brings us to our final thought, and that is to take up the gospel, that in your case, God chose restoration over retaliation. God chose to arrest the problem in your case and not the person. Jesus defended the sanctity of your life by coming to terms on your behalf with your rightful accuser, who is also your maker, who knows you better than you know yourself. Any realistic reading of the Sermon on the Mount suggests that the Sermon on the Mount is three chapters of accusation because none of us, none of us comes close to keeping one jot or iota of this sermon. You know, Spurgeon says that a mirror can show you how dirty your face is, but it can't wash your face. And the law of God is the same way. It can show us how dirty our face is, but it can't wash our face. I love the the words from precious Lord, take my hand. You know, I am tired. I am weak. I am worn. If that's not how I feel after reading the Sermon on the Mount, I'm not reading it honestly. And then in comes Jesus to wash my face by losing his face. In comes Jesus who goes to the court, so goes to court for me so the Father wouldn't hold me in contempt of court, who went to set a prisoner free, and that prisoner was me. If this isn't enough to arrest my heart and yours such that we would let down our swords and let, lay down our offenses and take up the gospel, if this doesn't do that to us, what will Please pray with me. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born again to eternal life. Thanks be to God. Amen.